You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, here we are, 2018. Woo! All right, first though, you have some explaining to do. Are you going to make an issue of this on the show, on the podcast? You don't even know what issue I'm going to make. Well, I think I do. I think you're about to peel back the curtain. Are you going to talk about how you don't own a microwave? That's, that's what I'm anticipating. See, that's since not, you, that's you not just, what I was going to bring up. I just up. witnessed you get your damn mind blown. You walked in here with your three-day-old cup of coffee. It's an exaggeration. Gas station coffee. You're exaggerating. Looking to warm it up. I got a fresh pot going. Listen, man. Blowing your damn mind. We don't have a microwave in here. Listen, you're going to... Never had it, never You're going to get a lot of blowback over this. Having a you're, microwave in your house is the first step... Toward robots. Next thing you know, your sex robot kills you in your sleep. Well, it's a slippery slope, what a way friend. to go slippery is all slope. I'm going to say about that. That's how I've always wanted to go. Uh, second of all, though, I, mean, I, I wasn't really going to bring up the microwave thing. But okay. since you, Saving your best stuff. Since you brought it up, show. I think that people... They do need to know. I, I really did not know people lived like this. Like I don't. There's a lot of things, a lot of questions I have that have surfaced since I've discovered this. I also don't know how I never figured it out before. Uh, but I felt just like I'm standing there like a child looking around your countertop for where your microwave is. Yep, and I'm like, oh, is it one of those built-in things? That's the first accurate description that you've made on this show so far. I just I, there's a lot of things I don't understand about. How, what do you want to make popcorn? You're watching. You're going to watch a movie. Want to make some popcorn? Yeah. This might astound you, but there are other ways to make popcorn. I don't believe it. Including an air popper and or you fucking pop that shit on the stovetop, my friend. <sighs> what are you, a pioneer? You are. Uh, what do you do about your Hot Pockets? This is the Ben Folks. What's your Hot Pocket situation? Is your New Year's resolution to just become an ugly American? You're just... <laughs> this is a hell of a stand feel for like you I'm, to make I feel right like, here. The microwave. That's I feel where like you're, I'm hosting this podcast with Steve Bannon. You're, right you're a culture gentleman. You're just wandering around. Anyway, in a, in a stunned, the point I was going to make, looking for the microwave. The thing I was going to say, uh, you delayed this week's podcast because you were going to go on a family trip. You did not go on said trip. I also feel like true. You, you owe everybody an apology. Um, I apologize. We could have recorded the podcast, uh, may perhaps yesterday, but you still would have been uh, waiting around the kitchen looking for that microwave. Ankle deep in in throw up, oh. in vomit. Oh no! In child and adult vomit. Did you get hit? Uh, I didn't get it as bad as everybody else did. I spent about four days. I would say feeling unwell, but like when my wife got my wife actually got it on the day we were supposed to leave on our trip, uh, and she didn't get out of bed for twenty four hours, which for my wife is really rare. She has to be very sick to huh. to not kind of like soldier through it. As I'm sure you know, we have three kids. Yeah. So like you can get as sick as you want, but you still got to kids ain't going to clock give, in. They don't give a shit. They do not. So you cannot they, explain that to them. Yeah, so we didn't go on our trip and uh I'd say it was just uh yesterday and today that everybody kind of was uh, back at 100%. Well, you know, now I'm feeling really good about my decision to turn down your offer of coffee because I'm not I'm not putting anything from this house into my mouth. Okay. Well, that's you're you, getting the starting the new year off right. That's the stand that I am taking. Uh new year's resolutions, anything Anything for you besides uh, 
coming in and questioning the limited convenience of your friends' homes? Um, yeah, I'm going to get a microwave to carry around in my car so that if I wind up in this kind of pioneer situation, I can plug that son of a bitch in, uh-huh. heat up my coffee. Next thing you know, sex robot kills you in your sleep. You keep saying it like that's bad. <laughs> that's actually probably not a bad way to go, right? Se- yeah. If a sex robot smothers you in your sleep. Yeah, I'll, you know, peacefully in my sleep, uh... Presumably, having recently had sex with a robot, what else do I want? It wouldn't be that different from what you do now. No, just it would end just with a glorious eternity of nothingness. I can truly say that the first four minutes of this show went in a way that I did not anticipate. Yeah, yeah. We, we usually got, wait till later to get the sex robot stuff. We got music again this week from our friend Dion Rodriguez, a music producer from Deltona, Florida. If you like what you hear from him on the podcast, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash dbeats7. And again, that's the word beats with a Z. Beats. And as always, if you enjoy the co-main event podcast, although at this point, I don't know why you would. Yeah, you need to rethink it if you do. (laughs) Uh, You can do us a solid by rating, reviewing, or subscribing to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever platform you listen to it on. Uh, That stuff really does help our ranking and our rating. So lend us a hand if you've got a few minutes. And write us a review. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, finally a UFC women's featherweight division that has a champion and a headlining fight that we can all be... Wait a second. Some gym lackey called the champ a dude? That's perfect. And in round number two, are Conor McGregor and Habib Nurmagomedov going to trick us into thinking they're going to fight when in fact they're going to shoot a cute buddy comedy instead? And in round number three... New year, new UFC. We'll discuss our vain hopes and dreams for 2018. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail of the year comes to us from Cameron Chapman. Oh, what an honor. First podcast of the year, and you're still probably hungover or too cold to think straight. Both true. Or at least I am. So I'm just going to go through uh, words. I'm just going to go throw words at the screen, and then you can discourse what you like. Uh, Carlos Condit's return. Had you, one, feeling all the feelings as a once-dominant and exciting dynamo is reduced uh, to a sparring partner by Father Time, or two, cursing the UFC and their bullshit bright tie-in because Carlos couldn't get properly psyched up for his fight and play Rage Against the Machine during his walk-ins, or three, even more impressed with GSP. Happy 2018, gents. Huh, okay. Do I have to choose between one of these? I mean, I suppose you could do your own thing. I'm not going to pan you in. No, I guess I have to say number one. Because, you know, Carlos Conte didn't look bad. Nope. Didn't go out there and look awful. I think uh, maybe people underrate Neil Magny still. Uh, but he can, I think, drag you into a kind of fight that makes you look unimpressive. Especially if you're Carlos Conde and everybody get really high hopes for him as soon as they heard that he was coming back. And it was, I think we all had these kind of god of violence images and then the pairing i think really kind of did him no favors but it's true i mean i don't know really what we expect of a guy coming back after that long and then fighting an opponent like that i mean in retrospect this is really not that surprising right yeah and it's hard to say exactly what it means like you got carlos conid coming back after about 16 months off uh he loses this unanimous decision to neil magny uh, looks, as you said, serviceable. It's not like you watch this fight and you think, well, Carlos Condit is, is, is lost property shot. And at the same time, he drops to two and six overall, dating back to that loss to George St. Pierre at UFC 154 back in November of 2012. 
So, like, I feel like we need a couple more Carlos Condit performances before we can, you know, definitively say one way or, an- way or another what we are dealing with here in the soon-to-be 34-year-old Carlos Condit. Like, uh, it could be that Neil Magny is just kind of an awkward matchup of styles and the kind of pressure fighter that uh, could probably give you some some trouble if you're coming in with that much time off. You know what I mean? If you if you feel any rust or you're not as sharp uh, as you may have been as a more active fighter, Neil Magny is the kind of guy that's just going to be hard to get going against. So uh, hopefully we see a, a Carlos Condit that doesn't have to walk out to the theme song from Bright uh, in the future. And yeah. maybe that uh, maybe he gets going, gets gets the the wheels turning, he gets the sports car out of the out of the driveway. Do you notice he had on headphones during that? <laughs> I didn't notice that. But uh, do you think that the headphones were playing the soundtrack to Bright? Probably. He's yeah. probably syncing that up with his. Uh, Okay. With his walk-in music. Yeah, that's probably what he's doing. What would you do next with Carlos Condit if you're the UFC? Uh, you know, that's a tough question. And, like, honestly, I think we talked about this uh, when they announced this fight. I thought that Neil Magny was kind of a weird first matchup for him because it's not like Neil Magny is going to move the needle uh, in terms of, like, generating any excitement. But and, it is like a, here, we're easing you back into see, like, where in the rankings you belong. Like, if that's what you're trying to do, I think that's a pretty good fight. In some ways, yeah, but it's also, like, as I think we saw, a, a tough matchup against a guy who's maybe a little bit... Un- it was just, You know what it was? It was, like, the perfect classic UFC matchmaking, where you've got, you've got a guy, Carlos Condit, coming back in, kind of a fan favorite. He's been out a while. He has this potential to put on really exciting fights. And you put him out there against a guy uh, who's a great fighter in Neil Magny, but at the same time, like, isn't going to make it a spectacle and isn't going to, like, uh, be a tune-up fight for Carlos Condit and also is going to do stuff that kind of shuts down Carlos Condit's offense. So it's like, I don't know that anybody got what they wanted out of the Carlos Condit return fight. So I guess I would put him out there with someone who would have the potential to provide a really excited, exciting Carlos Condit kind of fight. And maybe, dare I say, someone in the back of your mind, you think, mm, Carlos Condit probably beats this guy. Are you talking about Mike Perry right now? Uh, I wasn't thinking about Mike Perry, but Mike Perry like kind of checks those boxes, doesn't he? Well, there's a lot of guys at welterweight right now that can kind of well, check those boxes. That's the welterweight division is an embarrassment of riches right now. Yes, it is. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Arnold Gonzalez. He writes, uh, did you Google this, by the way, Arnold Gonzalez? Or are we just going to take this in the new year on good faith? Well, let's find out. Okay. Uh, did you see that Bellator and Jimmy Smith have parted ways? This is interesting to me because when the UFC fired Mike Goldberg, there was no clear-cut announcer team. And if you remember, Dana White told us that the Dream Team was going to be formed in July. Uh, I guess that was the last time he told us a lie. Uh, anyway, my question oh. is, with so many people doing the announcer job these days, the color commentator guy, uh, is there any room for Jimmy Smith? And if there is, uh, when do those, when do when they do those shots of the broadcast people, are they going to be afraid that people will think they are cloning Joe Rogan? Uh, please be kind to me. This is my first time writing the show. And as like Vanderlei Silva, English is not my first language. You know what happens when you Google Arnold Gonzalez? A lot. I bet you get a lot of results. There's, I can confirm there's at least three different Arnold Gonzalez's. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and take it at face value that this is the real Arnold Gonzalez. Okay. And a the, real And Arnold hey, man, if, if English is your first language, you're doing pretty awesome here. That's a good email. Um, and, you know, I was, were you surprised? I mean, I guess it's surprising to me in some ways that Bellator cut bait with Jimmy Smith and also not surprising in other ways because if you're Bellator, uh, I don't know, maybe you think you can save a little money by uh, – getting rid of Jimmy Smith and, and filling that uh, 
that empty broadcast seat with somebody like a Chael P. Sonnen or uh, even like a Matt Mitrione maybe at some point. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with the thinking there, but I also – I would be wary of, if I'm Bellator, sending the signal that I am trying to cut costs. Which, I mean, sure, you're a business. You want to be as profitable as you can. If you see an opportunity to cut costs, you're going to do it. But if you're – especially Bellator right now, you don't want people looking at you and going – are they trying to trim this down to a skeleton crew uh, to, because they're in trouble? Well, it's an odd move. Like, what do you? I guess we're just speculating, but I have no idea how the Bellator slash Jimmy Smith partnership could fall apart otherwise. Well, yeah, he. I don't know if you saw his comments about it, where he was saying basically that he had an option year in 2018, and they sat down with him and were like, "Hey, we want to basically change the contract and pay you less money." Uh, and he felt like, you know what? Nope, not going to hang around and do that. So it seems somewhat of an amicable split. But uh, he... also, Jimmy Smith, welcome to the media business. <laughs> well, you know, I on one hand. I can understand Bellator thinking, like, hey, we'll put a fighter in there. That way we'll give the fighters some work. We'll uh, pr- help promote them, like, on the broadcasts in a way. And the guy like Chel Sonnen, he can do that job. You know, he, he can be somebody that somebody will want to listen to talk, uh, even if he gets a little too salesman-y, I feel like, when he uh, is a broadcaster. He's still better than, like, 90% of the fighters you would get to be a broadcast. I mean, it's a harder yeah. job, I think, than people yeah. realize. Uh, and he does a, a pretty good job of it. I think Jimmy Smith does an excellent job of it. Uh, but I, I guess I feel like if you're Bellator, I would want a really kind of consistent thing that's identifiable with the brand. And I felt like Jimmy Smith, he's been there for nine years. He really was that everybody, like nobody was tuning into Bellator broadcasts and being like, you know, the problem here is the color commentary. Like he's always doing a really good job and you let him go. He's going to do something next. Right. I mean, if, if he ends up with the UFC, then what, did you just trade? Because if you traded Jimmy Smith away and got Mike Goldberg, you made a bad trade, my friend. Okay, can I tell you what honestly was the first thing that went through my mind when I saw that the that Bellator and Jimmy Smith had parted ways? I wondered immediately, what's going on with Brian Stan? What's the business uh, school? I know, yeah, he left the UFC to like go back to school and pursue a real estate career, right? Yes. I had to wonder to myself, like, I wonder what the status of his UFC contract is. Uh, if anything, and I thought to myself, it would be a very Scott Coker style move to put together basically a an ex UFC broadcast team. If you've got Mike Goldberg and a guy like Brian Stan out there calling the Bellator events, well, hey, if you could go get Brian Stan, I'll take back everything I just said. Like because that would be an awesome get for you. Uh, I think the biggest obstacle there would be convincing Brian Stan to throw his fortunes back in with the topsy-turvy world of MMA. No, I, I think agree. he's probably happy to be in a more regular business. Uh, he might be, but also, like, um, what's that paying? And, and is Bellator going to pay him more? Like, I think that there are... I wouldn't say never, knowing what I know about sure. this business. Let's just not say never. Okay. What do you think about Jimmy Smith? Like, in a way, I feel like he might land at the UFC, but I kind of feel like that's not a UFC-style move. Like I, we think about it working the other way, right? right? Like Bellator is going to steal the UFC announcers. Not that the UFC is going to take on a guy who's been working at Bellator. And if he doesn't land in the UFC, like uh, what does Jimmy Smith end up doing? I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, I'm sure he can do, he can do commentary on other stuff or, you know, work for another organization or something. But uh, I, w- I really would like to see him in the UFC mainly because I get a little tired of the combo of just like, uh, play-by-play guy and current fighter. 
and commentary and as color commentator. And I think some of those guys do a really good job. I mean, obviously, like Paul Felder does an excellent job. Dominic Cruz does a good job. Uh, Daniel Cormier does a pretty good job. But I do think it gets you into some tricky territory when you always have like an active fighter yeah. in that role because there's going to be various conflicts that come up for him and things that make you wonder exactly whether his allegiances are affecting his commentary or when a fighter has to come over through the cage and start talking shit to him because he's the guy in your division. Uh, that gets a little weird. I would like to see it a little more consistently like, hey, you know, you have to – I think like Dan Hardy actually serves a, a really good role in that way because he's not an active fighter. And so you get people like that. Uh, who can really do the commentary gig, and it adds a lot to the broadcast. I think there's no way you could tell me that if you put Jimmy Smith on the mic at a UFC event, he hasn't just made it better. Right, and it happened this past uh, UFC event, right? UFC 219, you had Dominic Cruz out there commentating on a Miles Jury fight, right? And aren't Dominic Cruz and Miles Jury are either current teammates or were at one time teammates. I think they're re-teammates again. And it does it does affect like the broadcast. And the UFC is trying to do some different stuff with the broadcast team, with the broadcast uh the makeup of the booth, I guess you would say. So maybe it doesn't, um, it wouldn't be that surprising to see them bring in a guy like Jimmy Smith. Uh, so yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. And I feel like if you don't land a gig like that though, it's a, it's probably a precipitous drop off. Like you probably make sure. decent money if you're Jimmy Smith going to the UFC, if you don't go to the UFC and you wind up, you know, on access TV calling an LFO, LFO is not a, a fighting organization. That's a boy band. Yeah. Uh, but you probably make less money. Don't you think if you're on LFA or WFZ or whatever they got over there? Yes, I would think you would make less money on LFO. Actually, if you're in LFO, you might do okay for yourself. Maybe not these days. What they do? Were they the, uh, I like girls that wear Abercrombie and Fitch? Yeah, there you go. That was, uh, That's the one. Next Round. question. Well, that is, was right there, huh? You right, didn't have to reach for that one. I don't remember what I had for breakfast exactly. this morning, but I got that one there. This question comes to us from Ian Gordon. He writes, Yoel Romero is finally due back in action in February to face David the Executive Branch. Romero seemed to gas out towards the end of his fight against Bobby Knuckles, with many attributing this energy uh, degradation to his inflated physique, as they always do, right? Can we expect to see a slighter version of the Soldier of Dog, or will he risk another dot, 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 Cuban muscle crisis? Wow. I can't confirm at this time if the whole reason for this question was to drop that pun. Well, you know what? I was just sitting here being like, wait a minute. Did he just write this question around an awesome pun? And I'm glad to see him admit it. You'll recall, if you think back, that Ian Gordon tweeted both of us to let us know he was going to send an email that had an awesome pun in it. So even if well, he can't confirm that the whole reason he sent this email was the awesome pun... He actually kind of did confirm that. Well, and he delivered on a, a promise right there because that is a pretty great pun. No, yeah, I got nothing bad to say about it. It's it's a it's a great pun. What do you think about the middleweight pairing here? Yoel Romero, a guy who for a long time seemed like he was biding his time before he would be wearing the gold. Uh, now with like a dangerous contender fight against the executive, Dave Branch. Uh, but but at the same time, it feels like a little bit of a get-back fight for Yoel Romero, doesn't it? It does. That's exactly what it feels like. But it was, it's also a good pairing. I mean, if you just look where both guys are right now, and you think about the violence potential in this fight, I like it. Like, I'm, I'm excited to see a fight like that. Uh, I do wonder, say Yoel Romero goes out there. Let's say he does a classic Yoel Romero thing here. He goes out there, loses or comes close to losing the first two rounds, and then launches himself 10 feet into the air uh, while coming down with his knee right on the point of, of Dave Branch's jaw, knocks him out spectacularly. Um, then are you like, okay, 
40-something-year-old Yoel Romero right back in the mix at middleweight? Or do you need a little more convincing do you, before you're really to, ready to consider him as another one of the multiple contenders in that division? Oh, I think he's right there, right? It kind of depending on what happens when Robert Whitaker fights Luke Rockhold. Like, if you look at the U- UFC rankings, not that that means anything or is the end all beat all. Like, Yoel Romero is still technically the number one contender. So, like, you think he beats Dave Branch, he's, he'd have to still be right there in, in the, uh, in this middleweight division where the title picture is still a little bit cloudy given that, uh, George St. Pierre kind of had a one and done showing where he beats Michael Bisping for the title and then, uh, immediately segues back into retirement owing to some new medical concerns. Uh, but like because of that and because, you know, right behind uh, guys like Rockhold and Romero, you've got Jacare Souza and Chris Weidman and, and Kelvin Gastelum and then the former champ Michael Bisping all still kind of uh, mired in their own troubles, I guess you might say. I don't know who else it would be, right? Like if Yoel Romero does something really impressive against Dave Branch, I would think he would be next up for the winner of Robert Whitaker versus Luke Rockhold. Uh, definitely if it's Luke Rockhold, probably if it's Robert Whitaker, just because the, the, you know, they've already fought. Yeah. Uh, you want to see my impression of Michael Bisping upon hearing that, uh, Yoel Romero has been booked against someone else. Do I? Whew. Okay. See, so yeah. you couldn't, yeah, no, they, I'm, they're I'm, not going to, I'm doing the little thing where you you're wipe wiping your forehead, your like yeah. you're like, you're relieved. I don't know why that is, it, but you get it. Yeah. It doesn't work as well on the radio. Man, this coffee is so cold. I, I can't ad- get over it. I admire Only what, had a microwave. What, what you're doing here in the first show of the new year. Yeah, just, yeah you're into it? Yeah. Feel, you can feel how cold just it is through the cup. Hij- Put your hand on it. Hijacking the show. How long has this been in your car? It feels like I'm holding an ice cube. Don't, don't try to distract from the real issue here. It's not, a, it's not important how long it's been in my car. Next question this week comes to us from Rob Walden. He writes, I have virtually no knowledge of Japanese MMA. So with that in mind, I ask, what exactly is the deal with Gabby Garcia? Even without her missing weight by a ridiculous amount, this whole thing is just weird. Is there really a market for seeing her beat up a much smaller, older woman? Why would Ryzen put her in matches like that instead of trying to book legitimate competition? Why would she want to fight old ladies? Help me out here, because from where I'm sitting, the whole gimmick should just not exist. (laughs) Well, there's really only one place that it can exist consistently, and that's the one place that it is existing. This remind before we move on fully, this question about Gabby Garcia reminds me that the question Ian Gordon actually asked us was we were if we were gonna see a slighter version of Yoel Romero, to which I say, nah. Nope. Yeah. So Gabby Garcia an enormous woman over there in Japan, uh, beating up old ladies for the spectacle value of it all. Or not getting to do that. Being scheduled to beat up old ladies and then... Which, come on, this one Mercy intervenes. It is kind of ridiculous because she was supposed to come in at, I think, 209 pounds. I think that was the limit for this one. Her opponent... 209. Her opponent, uh, a 53-year-old former professional wrestler and Japanese politician... Uh, came in, I think, at around 160 pounds. So even if she made weight for the fight, she would still have an almost 50-pound weight advantage. And that was going to be okay with them. They were fine giving her a 50-pound weight advantage against a 53-year-old woman. But then when she can't, you know, a 75-pound a weight advantage, apparently unthinkable. Can't do it. Which, I, I mean, I get it, but I also don't get it in a way. And as for the question about, like, shouldn't she be fighting, like, real competition how who is there for her like how many 209 pound women or like in her case you know closer to like 230 pound uh female fighters are there for her to fight 209 pounds that's heavyweight 
That is the heavyweight division yes, in mixed martial arts. Yeah. So yeah, there's not a lot of uh not a lot it's not a stacked division, competition wise. Right. Women's heavyweight. Although I did see someone was on the uh on the Twitter machine saying that they would gladly go over there and, and beat her up. I just don't remember the, the woman's name. But uh if you're gonna yeah, the, here's the thing, right? If you're rising and you're gonna have Gabby Garcia, which if you're rising, you are gonna have Gabby Garcia, because why not? The trouble is going to be, who does she get to beat up? It is weird, though, to continue to book her against borderline senior citizens, is it not? Yeah, like, of course it's weird. You could find a, a bigger athlete to come in there and fight Gabby Garcia, who's not about to uh, qualify for AARP. A, a rumor I heard after last year's New Year's Eve show was that one thing Ryzen wanted to do was to book Gabby Garcia against a male fighter. And... In the rumor I heard, the offer, or at least the possibility, was even put to Mark Coleman, who was insulted by it. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Both both of those things being true. But as for the question about, like, is there actually a market for seeing her beat up old women? I mean, maybe in Japan there is. Uh, they do seem to, oft, like, the Japanese uh, combat sports public often seems to have a thing where there's something that they seem to like about seeing uh, Japanese fighters, for lack of a better description, take a beating. Like, remember when they had they, they had voting once on one of those tournaments, one of those dream tournaments, back when Sakuraba was still fighting in, in dream, and it was like, pick the first round matchups, you know, by fan online voting. And there were a lot of fights that you could have picked for an elder statesman at the time, like Sakuraba, who had the bandages of shit out of his knees just to get in there. You could have been kind to him in a lot of different ways and helped ensure his participation in the tournament beyond the first round, as well as just save his brain cells. Do you remember who they voted on? Who they picked via this fan voting? No. Melvin Manhoff. Okay, yeah, that'll do it. That'll get Sakuraba nice and all beat up. I feel like enjoyment. whatever that impulse is, probably the same one that makes them want to see a 53-year-old uh, woman fight Gabby Garcia. I'm trying to think if there would be an American equivalent to this. Would this be like... If they let Stipe Miocic just beat the shit out of Hulk Hogan. And would you watch that? Yeah. Hell <laughs> yeah, watch okay, that. Okay, so stop acting like it's so weird, right? Well, Stipe Miocic is a little, little bit closer to Hulk Hogan's size, I guess. I mean, this is more like, would you watch uh, Stipe Miocic uh, beat up Orrin Hatch? Also, they kind of would watch. Uh, wow, that's yeah, I guess so. Or actually, it's just more like Jesse Ventura. There you go. That's a good. Uh, that's a pretty good analogy. Yeah, and yeah, it still would probably watch. Yeah, it. still would watch. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast that'll get you in touch with us while you're there you can sign up for the breakfast of champions newsletter that comes out every friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast stuff always happens news always breaks the newsletter itself is short it's informative we would love to tell you it's funny and that you will enjoy it but if you don't the good news is it's really easy to unsubscribe as for right now we're gonna go ahead and get started with round number one
So, Ben, the main event of UFC 219 on December 30th, live from the T-Mobile Arena down there in Las Vegas. Actually, Paradise, Nevada, uh, which I guess must be right in the middle of Las Vegas. Yeah. Because that's where T-Mobile Arena is. Uh, the first ever title defense of the UFC Women's Featherweight Championship, featuring uh, Chris Cyborg against Holly Holm, because if you'll remember, Jermaine Durandamy beat Holly Holm to win the women's 145-pound title, and then wouldn't defend it. So they stripped her after, what, like 125 days? It's like four months, yeah. Something like that. Uh, Chris Cyborg jets in there, beats up Tanya Evinger, takes that thing, and now this is the uh, this was the first official title defense with, Hall, with uh, Chris Cyborg ultimately defeating Holly Holm by unanimous decision in the main event of UFC 219. There's a lot of stuff going on with this that we could that we could break down. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit just about the, the fight itself and then maybe some of the extenuating circumstances that, that cropped up afterward. What was your initial impression of uh, Chris Cyborg versus Holly Holm? I was surprised that it was as competitive as it was, to be honest. Holly Holm took some shots from Chris Cyborg and never really looked like she was in danger of being finished, though. And I thought she had in a way, kind of a smart strategy. She was trying to chip away from the outside and then trying to halt Cyborg's momentum when she would come forward with that clinch. And it seemed like, though, that was all that clinch was really meant to do. Like, it was not a super offensive clinch that she kept going for. She'd get double underhooks, press her against the fence. It could manage to trap her against the fence for a good long time, and Cyborg had a lot of difficulty getting out. It, I think one of the things it showed us was that... Uh, Against a lot of opponents recently, Cyborg has been getting by on strength and just being bigger and more powerful than they are. And when you have somebody, you know, Holly Holm coming up from bantamweight, but a big, strong bantamweight, and she wasn't able to muscle her around quite as much and had a little bit of trouble with that. Uh, but still, I thought a a good, solid, competitive fight uh, and a good uh, challenge that Chris Cyborg needed. Uh, what I wonder is what you do after that because like we talked about before with this division, there is not a division. The UFC doesn't even have rankings on the website. So it's like it seems like right now they're going to do, you know, Megan Anderson uh, from Invicta. And I don't know. Is there? I wonder if there's a long-term plan that's not just taking people one at a time, looking around and saying, okay, who can we get? Yeah, I have a devil's advocate question to ask you along those same lines. Um, obviously, Holly Holm comes in with what I thought was a pretty good game plan, though, as you said, perhaps a limited one. Um, she got her own shots in as well on, on Chris Cyborg here and there, uh, blasted her with a lot of straight lefts. Uh, but this was the kind of fight where um, it seemed like one person was in danger the entire time and the other person was maybe not in the same kind of danger. And obviously the person who was in the danger was Holly Holm. And so even though um, she was able to work her game to a certain extent and have some success against Chris Cyborg, she didn't really ever come close to feeling like she was in control of this fight. It just felt more like, uh, you know, and not that I say this as an insult to Holly Holm, who I think is a great fighter and a terrific athlete, like uh, uh, kind of in survival mode the whole time, like trying to win and not necessarily on the verge of being finished, certainly not to the extent that we've seen from Chris Cyborg's other recent opponents, but also like kind of trying not to lose. Yeah, it did seem like whether they said it out loud to themselves or not, uh, the path to victory in the minds of Holly Holm and her team was maybe split decision. Like, it didn't seem like, okay, we're going to go out here, we're going to do this, and then we're going to finish her in the third. And I guess maybe that's just a realistic approach to fighting somebody like Chris Cyborg. Uh, 
it was, I thought, interesting to see someone who can stand up to her punching power. Because that is something we've, we've wondered about. And everybody else, maybe in part because she gets to, to fight a bunch of uh, smaller opponents a lot of the time, you see him get hit once or twice with some of those shots from Cyborg. And I've seen her change people's minds. You know, when they take one shot, you can see it on their face where they think, this was a bad idea. Why did I ever agree to this? And it didn't happen to Holly Holm. Right. And so here's my devil's advocate question for you, Ben Folks. As you well know, the much of the recent history of Chris Cyborg's career has involved uh, the UFC and, by extension, fans, like, kind of trying to get Chris Cyborg into what we all considered to be, quote-unquote, the right place for her, right? Because they didn't have a 145-pound division. Obviously, her run with the Invicta featherweight title was five consecutive TKOs. Then she comes over to the to the UFC. She has a couple of catchweight fights, uh, both of which are also TKOs. Then she fights Tanya Avenger, who's not really a featherweight, another TKO. And then she fights Holly Holm, who arguably is the first sort of real women's featherweight that she's fought during her UFC run. And what we get is this like decent, marginally competitive, unanimous decision win for Chris Cyborg. So I guess my devil's advocate question is, now that we have gone through all this goddamn rigmarole to get Chris Cyborg into her natural weight class, are we to discover, Ben Folks, that the thing that made her a marketable star in the first place was that we liked watching her whip the shit out of smaller fighters? And now that she has competitive 145-pound uh, competition, in theory, does she become somehow less interesting if what we get are, you know... 40, 48, 47 wins across the board. You know what? I was sitting here when you said you had a devil's advocate question. I was like, man, I hope that it involves the phrase goddamn rigmarole. I really hope it does. And sure enough, sure enough, it did. I aim to please, my friend. Uh, I don't. I mean, I don't think it would come as a shock if we just admitted to ourselves that we liked seeing her beat the shit out of people. I don't know if we would have consciously said we want to see her beat the shit out of smaller fighters. I mean, the smaller fighters things makes it more likely that there will be this shit beating out of part going on. But I, I also think you look at Holly Holm and you see somebody who might be tailor-made to give her a, a tougher fight, and that, a, you know, a good stand-up fighter who is also uh, bigger and stronger and a better athlete than a lot of the past opponent she's got so maybe you can make the case that like okay that's as close as it's going to get but no i mean clearly the attraction of chris cyborg is that she is a phenom and that she is just a destroyer of worlds the the appeal is seeing her just go completely hulk smash on people right. so if you did get into like a situation where you know now that she has this title it's all a bunch of decision wins. And maybe even if she feels like she has something to lose there and so she fights more carefully or, or whatever it would be that would cause that, then yeah, I think a lot of the interest would, would start to drain out. And it's possible that she just fought in Holly Holm the best, you know, the second best 145-pound women's fighter that the UFC can can scrape together for her. And so we got this, like, somewhat more competitive fight. I just think it's an interesting question to ask. Like, is this really what we want to see? Uh, Chris Cyborg square off in competitive matches with other 145 pound women uh, because you can't go too far down the old psychological road before you got to ask yourself some some interesting questions. Well, yeah, right. Like, <laughs> see, what do we like about Chris Cyborg to begin with? <laughs> that's the flip side, though, is if this is not what we want to see, well, then tough. We need to shut up and deal with it because 
you know, we can't complain if the fights start to get more competitive. Like, that just means she's fighting better opponents. Right. But there's also an aspect of it that's like, if the thing that we just did since, you know, Chris Cyborg arrived in the Octagon, what, in uh, spring of 2016, I believe she made her Octagon debut. Uh, if we spent all of the time between then and now working to get her into this 145-pound division and the thing that happens after we've created that is that she somehow becomes a lot less marketable, like, what did we just do, really? That's, that's all I'm saying. I think you don't have to worry that much because I think pretty soon we're going to be back in a position where there's nobody reasonable and competitive to give her. And so then the UFC is going to go back to offering bantamweights who need a break. Like, hey, get a, get in here and take your whipping against Cyborg and then you'll have a UFC deal. And don't worry, we'll get we'll get back to the crazy squash matches before you know it. What's oh. Jan Finney up to? <laughs> Cuddles. All right. Um, Let's talk about the other thing. Right. And that is that uh, the official photographer, I'm going to put official in air quotes, even though people can't see it because I'm not entirely sure as to the business arrangement there. Uh, but the photographer for the Jackson Winklejohn MMA camp gets himself in some hot water in the wake of this fight by was it an Instagram post. I believe it it's was always a goddamn Instagram post at this point. Uh, puts up the Instagram post where he refers to uh, Chris Cyborg as a quote unquote dude. Uh, obviously causes an uproar in the MMA community, gets himself banned by the UFC for credentials, which I think brings up a whole different kettle of fish that we could talk about for a while. Yes, it does. In uh, a world where a handful of the best mixed martial arts journalists in the world cannot get credentialed by the UFC. Uh, I guess I understand how the quote-unquote official photographer for the Jackson Wink camp would have a credential but it is also kind of an are you fucking kidding me moment uh, that dudes like that are running around with uh, with credentials when when people like Josh Gross and Jonathan Snowden and Loretta Hunt and for a certain time uh, this year, Ariel Hawani could not be credentialed. does make me uh, it's a little bit of a head scratcher there. Uh, but what are we doing here, Ben? And, and how does a fight camp that I think is renowned in this sport for having some of the best people, some of the... The best, let's say the best thinkers in the sport, uh, so mismanage its social media account. Well, it wasn't like the official Jackson's media account, right? I think it was, wasn't it? Or was it just this dude's personal Instagram? I think it might have been the dude's personal Instagram. Oh, okay. I don't know. I could be wrong about that. But even then, I mean, I, I can imagine right now the look on Greg Jackson's face if you went to him and said, hey, what's up with your guys' Instagram account? Yeah, uh, okay. So I think Solid that's point. that's part of the issue. And also, it is it is unfortunate to see like the gym kind of get uh, tarred by association because you're right. Like Greg Jackson and Mike Winklejohn are two good dudes, and it doesn't seem like anything that they would condone. Uh, but there are a lot of people kind of associated with Jacksons in one way or another at this point. And so I think that's how it happens. But it's also, it's not like that guy was a so, like complete outlier. There, you see a lot of people using that particular line of attack against Chris, against Chris Cyborg just on MMA Twitter in general. Right, and among them, the UFC president, right? Yeah, Once back when he called her Vanderlei Silva an address. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, obviously... All of that is some stupid bullshit that they should all knock off. Uh, but it is like a thing that it seems to be the first thing people reach for when they're mad at Chris Cyborg for something. And it, I mean, at least it seems like we've gotten to a point now where when you do it, you are immediately condemned for doing it. Uh, so 
that's some sign of improvement. Also, though, did you see the Team Cyborg's response? Where they tried to get people to give bad Yelp yep, reviews yep. to you, Jackson Winklejohn's you, gym. You are familiar with my theory that in mixed martial arts, the thing that happens after the scandal is always the worst. Like in this <laughs> okay. case, and it's not, I'm not going to say it's the worst, right? Because obviously the worst thing was this guy calling Chris Cyborg a dude on the Instagram. But like there, I have, it's almost never happens where someone in this sport correctly manages the aftermath of a crisis because if you're Chris Cyborg and her team, the thing that you have to do after this happens, nothing, nothing. You don't have to do anything. Nope. You're already right. You can just stop. (laughs) Yes. You can just do nothing and be a sympathetic figure and people will be on your side. The only way that you could kind of lose that cachet is by stepping out here and doing something dumb. Also, Really? Yelp review? That's what we're going to do? That's how we're going to take your revenge is give them a bad Yelp review? Yep, that's right, because the next great heavyweight prospect in mixed martial arts is going to be shopping around for a gym. That's right. Probably in the Albuquerque area. Yeah. And he's going to be like, oh, wait, this Jackson Winklejohn Academy only has three and a half stars on Yelp. I wonder what's what's shaking at the MMA lab, right? (laughs) Going to drive all the way over to the MMA lab. Uh, But hey, if he needs a top for lunch, he's already got Yelp open on his phone, so he'll find a place. You want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we can move on to round number two. Yes. Ben, I have the rare positive Are You Fucking Kidding Me to, to begin 2018 because did you see this breaking news before we went on the air to record the podcast that former UFC lightweight contender TJ Grant is back. I did see that. After a manner of speaking. He's not back fighting in the UFC, but he's taking over the new MMA program at the Pro Edge Fight Gym up there in Halifax which I am just, I'm just spitballing, but I'm going to guess that that position is better than working in a mine, which is what we, the last we heard of, of TJ Grant. He was working in the mines up there in Canada. So are you fucking kidding me? That's awesome for TJ Grant to be back in, in a way back on the scene, right? You fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Maybe he's in there in the gym. He gets the bug. I think we all know where this is going, right? Yeah. Depending on how the, uh, how the medicals look, right? Yeah. Well, we do need to get that sorted. Chad, I also am going to start the year with a positive. Are you fucking kidding All me? All right, I like what we're doing here. Starting a real, uh, some momentum. Yeah, we're not going to keep this up. But did you see the promo for UFC 220 with your boy Francis Ngannou yep. taking on Stipe Miocic? Hot fire. That is how you do it. Yep. That's... Are you fucking kidding me? Also, though, it does make me turn around and have like a kind of counter are you fucking kidding me reaction because I realize, oh, yeah, like when it wants to, when it wants to like spend the the money and time and effort to really put together a solid promo, the UFC can really come up with some good shit. So then the rest of the time, I guess you're just like painting by numbers, just falling back on the same lazy tropes that you always use. You can really do it when you want to. Are you fucking kidding me? Why don't you do that more often? Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? That scene of Alistair Overeem knocked out on the canvas, though. Yeah. Making that face like he just tasted like a real spicy pickle or something. <laughs> spicy pickle? I'm just just what? making a face like he tasted a sour grape. Something yeah. happened there. That is memorable. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. You know what I'm going to start saying when people ask me uh, what you and Sir Nigel are up to? 
Are you going to start saying we're bullshit guys? I don't want to talk about these bullshit guys. You're going to smash us? Yeah. Okay. All right. I like it. Yep. Your boy Khabib Nurmagomedov goes out there and just kind of tears the guts out of Edson Barboza over the course of three rounds. The point where you, you're just looking at Barboza's face by the end. And you can tell that he has, he's gone somewhere else in his mind, like you do at a bad dentist appointment. And just kind of trying to get through this and hoping it'll be over soon. Now, Khabib, as he's known to do afterwards, he goes and he puts on the furry hat and he starts talking about uh, Conor McGregor and Tony Ferguson, these bullshit guys. Uh, and there seemed to be just a wealth of possibilities that you can do here. And it also seems like we're just not going to make this easy on ourselves, are we? We have, like, a, basically a, a round robin where you could have some awesome fucking fights at lightweight to determine the best lightweight in the world, which may be the most competitive weight class in all of MMA, and yet it also seems like the next many months could see just a lot of talking and no real fighting. Yeah, and I don't want Ariel Helwani to uh, sue me for gimmick infringement, but this was an, oh, you must have forgot performance by Habib Nurmagomedov because we hadn't seen the guy in 13 months, which unfortunately uh, has been the rule more so than the exception uh, during his UFC career. Last time we saw him is when he he fought Michael Johnson back at UFC 205 and defeated him by uh, late Kimura. Uh, but he goes out there against Edson Barbosa and we get vintage Habib Nurmagomedov uh, some some dicey moments early, though I don't know necessarily how dicey, but you fast forward to the point in this fight when once he has Edson Barboza on the mat and he is unleashing that ground and pound, which is as violent as anyone in the sport and dare I say nearly as violent as anyone I've ever seen in this sport, which is a compliment to a 155-pound man. Uh, and you remember, oh, yeah, this is why Habib Nurmagomedov is 25 and 0. Yep. So you, you get through with the fight. And like you said, you know, all, much respect to Tony Ferguson, but I'm not sure there's a matchup of styles on the board right now that I would like to see more than Conor McGregor against Habib Nurmagomedov, not only because of its kind of like iconic striker versus grappler uh, uh, positioning, but also because I couldn't tell you what was going to happen because – Habib Nurmagomedov is a straight-up murderer, but at the same time, that dude is reckless on his feet. And the forward pressure that he brings opens him up uh, to take shots. And he took some shots, both from Edson Barboza and Michael Johnson in his last fight. And, you know, we've seen what happens to lightweights and featherweights uh, when Conor McGregor punches them in the face with that left hand, and it, it ain't nothing nice. So, like, if you told me Conor McGregor was going to knock Habib Nurmagomedov out in the first round, I couldn't tell you you were crazy. Right, and I agree that style-wise, that one feels like a great matchup because it feels like, okay, we're going to answer some questions here uh, about Conor McGregor and about Khabib because it's just like, okay, you're going to find out how McGregor deals with just a relentless grappler. You're going to find out exactly how great Nurmi's chin is. So, yeah, I get that people really want to see that. I also feel like if you're the UFC and you're going to bring Conor McGregor back for a real lightweight title fight— how do you justify not doing Tony Ferguson? Because he, you gave him the interim belt. You, you put that up for grabs. He won it. He's the interim champ. How do you tell yourself, okay, lightweight champ is coming back and he's going to fight someone who is not the interim champ? Right. And see, that's the downer here is that if I put myself in the shoes of Conor McGregor, and it is possible that at some, you know, that sometimes we overstate the idea of Conor McGregor 
not wanting to take tough matchups of styles, right? It's been kind of remarkable the way he's been able to avoid grapplers thus far in his UFC career, aside from an untrained Chad Mendez. Uh, but maybe we overstate the idea that Connor's not going to fight somebody because it, it's going to be a dangerous matchup of styles. But at the same time, it makes more sense for him to fight Tony Ferguson and win or lose. It probably makes more sense for him to fight somebody like Nate Diaz or George St. Pierre after that. So if you're Habib Nurmagomedov, you're looking at a long wait and, or the idea that, you know, you will ever get to fight Conor McGregor seems uh, a little bit far-fetched. And I've actually, I was actually kind of surprised this week, the extent to which they've engaged each other on social media, the extent to which Conor McGregor at least kind of seems like he would be open to the idea of fighting Habib Nurmagomedov. Uh, and remember, you know, way back when uh, Mayweather versus McGregor still seemed like a pipe dream, there was talk of Conor McGregor being inter- interested in like a big spectacle fight in Russia against Habib Nurmagomedov. So I'm not saying it's totally out of the question, but I agree with you that when I start to think uh, about how this is going to go, the least desirable fight to me, if I am Conor McGregor, is Habib Nurmagomedov. Well, but you look at the three of these guys and you you can't make a mistake, really. Like the, any fight you put together between any of those three, I'm interested in seeing it. If you do, and I think this is what... Uh, seems like a likely scenario to me. Uh, Nurmi versus Tony Ferguson. Yeah, I was just uh, going to say that's that's probably the most likely scenario given what we know about the relationship between Conor McGregor and the UFC and how long it's going to take them to convince the guy to get back in the octagon. Right. Like that seems like, especially some of his New Year's Day tweets where he's telling them to get their ditties out and beg him. That seems like a guy who is not really at the end of a negotiation that he's happy with with the UFC, which also throws further doubt on that whole, well, we had him booked at the end of the year, but then we took him off the card as punishment for the Bellator uh, cage invasion. Kind of makes it seem like, no, that's obviously a lie because you're not on good enough terms with him to book him right now. Uh, but it seems like that's going to take a little while. So if I were Nurmi, I would start angling for, hey – Give me Tony Ferguson and let's find out who the real top contender is, like who the guy McGregor needs to fight is. If I'm Tony Ferguson, I probably try to avoid that and hold out for the big money fight against Conor McGregor unless the UFC can make it worth my while to get in there with Nurmi uh, or unless it seems like you're going to have to wait a year. But, I mean, that would not be a bad outcome really for fans to see those two fight and then whoever comes out of that one, you're thinking, okay, here we go. Like this – the feeling of Conor McGregor's return just got bigger because we know absolutely this guy is the best uh, lightweight, you know, top contender waiting for him. Then you get him back in there and you have yourselves an awesome fight. The question I wonder is, is the UFC going to be willing to give away the store to get Conor McGregor back? Because on one hand, you absolutely should. He's the biggest star in the history of the sport. Uh, but you know he's going to make some huge demands. He said before he wants a piece of the company. Uh, he, he's going to want that ditty bread if he's going to get back in there and the UFC and, you know, new owners have to be wondering, okay, wait a minute. Is it worth it? If we have to give away too much to get the star back, does that negate what he brings us when he comes back? Especially if you don't know, he might come back for that one fight. You have no guarantees with this guy. Any fight you see him in could be his last fight. I don't know what ditty bread is. Does that just mean a lot of money? I think. Diddy has a lot of money. Okay, so he's saying like, I want as much money as that guy. The does. artist formerly known as Puff Daddy. That's right. Does he know that he makes most of his money off alcohol? 
Well, he is, he talked about how he has his whiskey line launching this year, and that's Diddy Bread on top of Diddy Bread. Okay, double Diddy Bread. Double Diddy Bread. You know what? DDB. Exactly what happens with Conor McGregor at this point, I think, is impossible to predict. Uh, it does make for a, a splendid segue into our round three, though, where we're going to talk about uh, many of the questions facing the mixed martial arts world in this new year, because I think you can make the argument that 2017 did nothing but raise them, right? I don't know that much at all was answered this year, uh, in the, especially in the UFC landscape about... Uh, where we're going or, or, or what's going to happen. And that makes 2018 uh, very interesting. But I'll tell you one thing, just as it pertains to this UFC interim lightweight title, Habib Nurmagomedov versus Tony Ferguson is aces. There, there's nothing wrong with that because you know what Habib is going to do. He's going to go out there and, and try to lay you flat on your back and just beat the stuffing straight out of you. Uh, you know what? Props to Edson Barbosa, by the way, for just getting torn up for 15 minutes and at least he's trying to do it at the end of the you know he's yeah. like he's not out there busting out lightning quick spin kicks anymore in in minutes 13 and 14 but he's still game as hell he's trying yeah so you got to give him credit for that uh but you know Nermy's going to try to do that to Tony Ferguson and Tony Ferguson is just going to be barrel rolling all over the goddamn octagon <laughs> which <laughs> sign me up would watch. Delightful. Yeah, would watch for sure. But we're going to talk about 2018 and what's going to happen potentially this year in round number three, and that starts right now. All right, Ben, there are a host of scintillating questions about what's going to happen in the UFC, what's going to happen in the mixed martial arts world in general in 2018. As we said during round number two, you got Conor McGregor floating around out there, uh, leaving us wondering as to what his future is going to be, whether he will return to the UFC at all, whether he will opt to have another boxing match. You've got uh, Ronda Rousey, who every day seems like she's probably done with her MMA career, now rumored to be showing up at the Royal Rumble uh, here in the next few months over in WWE. Uh, you got Brock Lesnar, who always seems like he's willing to dip his toe in just to check the temperature of the water. Uh, you got the UFC TV deal about to expire and efforts to sign a new one. You got new owners at Endeavor. Uh, we think attempting to steer the ship in one direction or another. You got Dana White talking about getting in, getting into boxing. And on top of all that, you got the Bellator heavyweight Grand Prix. Woo! Yeah. And I guess we might as well throw, you know, just as icing on the cake, maybe Ryzen's starting to make a little noise over there in Japan. I'm going to let you choose your own adventure. What to you is the most interesting question about this sport headed into 2018? Well, I think it's the combination of where the new ufc owners are going to try to take this thing and i think that the tv deal which is going to be kind of figured out in 2018 it seems that to me like those are connected and that's going to be the biggest issue especially because right now it seems like the ufc is in a perilous spot especially we talked about before a couple weeks ago i think about that last ufc on fox being one of the lowest rated in the series uh, and maybe the lowest rated for the time of year. And it was not like a bad fight card by any means. It was one of the, you know, kind of solid 
all-around UFC on Fox cards that we've come to expect from those. And when you look at stuff like that, especially with your TV deal expiring and the, the media rights landscape is just really tricky right now, it seems like this is make-or-break time. And the new owners, they put a lot of faith and a lot of the reasoning behind why it was worth this price tag uh, into what they thought they could get out of a media rights deal. And if you don't get that, man, that could be bad. That could be really bad. And also, like I, how the deal is arranged and what the UFC might do to try to get the money that it feels like it needs to get out of that deal is going to affect the way fans consume the product. And uh, I, I don't know if we are sure yet what that's going to look like. Yeah, then the, one of the big questions about WME IMG slash Endeavor taking over the UFC uh, from the Fertitta brothers was was to me, like, were they going to be in it for the long haul? Because, you know, the Fertitta brothers were obviously ruthless businessmen who shaped much of the landscape of the UFC and, and by extension, mixed martial arts to their whims, right? It's not an accident that almost everything in this sport is set up to benefit the promoter and not necessarily benefit the athlete. Uh, but at the very least, maybe the, the biggest positive thing you could say about Frank and Lorenzo Fertitta was that they fucking loved this shit. Like, they didn't own the UFC by accident. They owned it because uh, they were passionate about it. It was like their uh, their passion project, as, you know, if you inherit billions of dollars from your dad, you're allowed to <laughs> buy a, an enormous sporting venture and try to make it into the coolest thing in the world because yeah. you love it. Other people do woodworking. Right. Uh, but, yeah, no, you can own an entire sport. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we, we there was no guarantee that, that Endeavor had that same passion. And through like a year and a half of of Endeavor owning the UFC, I don't necessarily know that we've seen any of that passion from the owners, the new owners. Like, uh, guys like Ari Emanuel and, and, and Patrick Whitesell obviously have a lot on their plate and they just haven't really been around, haven't really been all that visible to MMA fans and UFC fans since they've owned the company. So we really have no idea how they feel about it or what they think the direction of it is or, you know, where they imagine it's going. But I guess if we fast forward to the end of 2018 and we, and, it, you know, we, they don't get the money that they thought they were going to get for the TV rights which at this point seems like kind of a safe bet to make. Just the landscape of television and the, where the UFC is at doesn't seem like they're going to be able to double or triple or maybe even get as much for their next TV deal. If they can't do that, and Conor McGregor doesn't return, and Ronda Rousey is gone forever, and Dana White becomes more and more interested in this boxing venture, well, then what? Because if you are WME IMG and you laid out $4.2 billion to buy this thing, and you realize by the end of this year... Uh, you're going to have a hard time making that money back. And you don't love this sport the way the Fertitta brothers loved it. Do you start quietly putting out feelers to see if there's anybody out there that wants to take this thing off your hands? I don't know. That seems like you would get a pretty poor price for it if you did that at this point, right? Because it would seem like you know you had almost instant buyer's remorse if you started trying to, especially if... Well, but at, by the, if all of those things happen by the end of 2018, are you in a position where you think this thing's just not getting better? I mean, obviously a new Conor McGregor-style star can appear almost instantaneously, as, we, as we've seen with Conor McGregor. Uh, but at the same time, like, if you are the owner of this thing and you're like, wow, we, you know, we bought this as an investment and we're just, we're just not going to get that money back, do you, 
do you hold out for the long term, hoping that, that it turns around? Or do you start to wonder how much you can get out of this thing? Well, I think you would hold on at least a little bit longer. I think also you would get Dana White to make his speech that he likes to make about how every time the UFC had a star, he'd hear somebody talking about, well, what are you going to do when they're gone? You know, he, it's the same speech he gives all the time. He's given this one as much as he's given the fighting is in our DNA speech, uh, where, hey, people said it about Chuck Liddell and Randy Couture and George St. Pierre. But always, you always find someone new, and you find a new star, and they help carry you forward. Uh, and, I mean, I think that there is some truth to that. I also think, though, it's kind of weird to me that one of his favorite speeches, especially lately, when he seems to find himself giving more and more often, is one that essentially boils down to, all these dudes are replaceable. None of them that big a deal. Don't worry about it. Uh, as if, you know, you can just go find or manufacture another Conor McGregor, because as we've seen, you can't really, or else you would have already. I mean, the idea that the UFC can just make stars whenever it wants to, if that were true, it would make more of them. Uh, so I don't think it works exactly like that, but I do think that if you keep your eye open and you have enough of like an ability to scoop up people on the way up, then yeah, you, you're going to find those people. And you still have the advantage right now of, sure, you're competing with Bellator for contracts and stuff, but right now, it's still the fighters coming up or telling themselves they want to be UFC champion. They're not telling themselves they want to be Bellator champion. It's the guys who have been in the UFC and seen how it works and are deciding, you know what? What I want to be is paid. Those are the guys who uh, Bellator has a better shot of luring away with contracts. But I think that if you are the new owners, you can't tell yourself – like you can't have a short-term mindset about this. And I'm sure it must be tempting after all that money you spent. Uh, but the – the focus now, I assume, is on making it seem as attractive as possible to a new TV partner and, like, a broadcast partner in a lot of different forms. Because if you're the UFC, it, you would be, seem like you'd be able to tell yourself that you're well-positioned for the era we're moving into, right? Like, you have your own streaming service already that's kind of established. You have hours and hours and hours of content. You're providing live sports, which is one of the few things that people will, you know, are still watching live and therefore is valuable to advertisers. You have a lot of the right pieces in play, so what are you missing? You're missing Conor McGregor, right? Like, uh, you asked at the end of round number two if the UFC should go to Conor McGregor's house and install an Octagon-branded ATM in there uh, to get him to come back to the Octagon. Uh, I would vote yes. I think he's worth it. Like, almost no matter what you have to pay him. Uh, if you had to guess, because that's what we're doing here, we are guessing, does Conor McGregor fight in the UFC during 2018? Yes. That's my guess as well, although I don't know what I base that on, uh, you know, aside from the fact that he seems interested, he's publicly seems interested. Uh, and I also think he's smart enough to know that uh, his second foray into boxing would likely be his last and might well be his last uh, fight as a marketable fighter. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure some part of him does want to get back at MMA and get a win after losing that boxing. Even if you, you made a ton of money in there. Uh, I'm sure there really is a part of you that wants to go back in there and feel that, that victory again. Plus, this is a guy who seems to like to spend money as well as make money. So you do that, you need to make some more money. Uh, I just think that uh, the we're going to see the him test the limits of what the UFC is willing to give up in order to get him back. And I do think that the problem with Conor McGregor is, like, say you give up an ownership stake to get him back, and like a good, meaningful ownership stake... Uh, you don't know how long you're getting him back for. You you can't make somebody get in there and fight. You can't, like, it seems hard to build in a guarantee for yourself that he's going to really come back and stick around and, you know, give you that star power back again rather than just coming back and doing one fight and then 
you know, peace out, going to go spend your money and live on a yacht in the Mediterranean somewhere. So like that does seem like the tricky part for them. But I also think that you're one of the things that the new TV partner is going to want to look at is what are we getting? Not just like the UFC brand, which seems like that was enough for, for Fox and that deal. But I do think they're probably going to want to say, like, who do we get on some of these cards? Because if the UFC's model stays like, hey, good stuff on pay-per-view, uh, you know, whatever's left over for UFC on Fox and, and UFC on Fox Sports, you know, the cable TV fight cards, and then the lowest tier on Fight Pass. I don't think that that model is going to be sustainable for the next 10 years. I think that there's going to need to be a change there. Yeah, and I think selfishly the thing that I'm most interested to see this year is what happens with that TV deal because, you know, if you rewind to the genesis of the UFC's deal with Fox, uh, it was largely hailed as like the UFC, the, the final piece of the puzzle of the UFC marching to mainstream acceptance, right? I don't think anybody fully understood how much it would change the way we as consumers interact with the sport. Uh, and it's changed it almost entirely, at least from my view. Uh, we, the, every, everything is much different now, I think, than we expected it to be. So I want to see, you know, wh- where we're going with that next television deal and how it might change the consumer experience. And of course, the thing that I am most worried about is that the consumer experience doesn't seem to be on anyone's mind nope. at all. Like, well, and that, but that would be one of the attractive things to you, right? If you are a like a network thinking about whether you want to shell out the money for the UFC, is the UFC can come to you and say. Look at these shit-eating wild men who follow this sport. They will follow it anywhere. And we will. You know, look at, like, think about some of the dog shit channels you have had to learn existed because you're an MMA fan. Think about the cable packages you were willing to purchase just so you would make sure you had whatever the UFC was on. Some of us used to work for Versus.TV, my friend. All right. All right. Fair enough. But, you know, that is a... Like uh, an asset you can offer those people is to say, like, you got a new, uh, like, channel you want to direct people to, or a new, uh, you know, kind of online streaming service, or some kind of new, like, you know, mobile viewing app or something that you want to direct more viewers to. You get this, and these people they don't they'll figure out a way to get there. Uh, you don't even have to tell them, you know, what channel is on. They'll just just tell them that there's a fight on Saturday night, and they will freak out trying to get to it. And you can have that small but reliable stream of viewers to kind of help you as a baseline, which really helps Fox Sports 1. Uh, and I think that that is going to be a maybe a problem for the audience, as you say, because nobody's really thinking about, like, hey, what would be best for them? They're thinking, in what way can you you leverage that into more money? All right. Let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff this week? Well, I know we mentioned uh, Carlos Condit walking out to the song from Bright, the the Will Smith joint uh, streaming on Netflix right now. And you probably also noticed that during the pay-per-view, there were several plugs for Bright and its soundtrack. And as somebody, I saw somebody point out on Twitter that, hey, you know, uh, Endeavor, WME, IMG, the, the owners, uh, had a hand in various ways in Bright and then in some of the artists that appear on the soundtrack. And so for them, it was like kind of a natural tie-in to just work all that stuff and kind of ham-handedly cram it into the UFC broadcast. I'm just saying, wasn't this shit supposed to work the other way? Wasn't it supposed to be that Endeavor's, you know, huge 
octopus-like reach into all areas of sports and entertainment would allow it to get the UFC exposure and all those different things? Wasn't it supposed to be like, hey, we can cut down on the marketing and advertising budget because we can just use all our other entertainment industry contacts and relationships uh, to get more of a spotlight on the UFC? Because it doesn't feel like that has happened so much. Instead, we get the flip side where Carlos Condit has to drown out the sound of a song from a shitty Will Smith movie with his own headphones. And I'm just saying, you can't, you're telling me you can't get Mark Hunt apart as an orc and bright? You, can't, you tell me that opportunity does not exist? Because wow, I don't believe you. There's a swerve there at the end of this. Just saying. Ben, uh, this week we had to, we saw Misha Tate announce her pregnancy. Hey! Out there on the, you know how she did it? Instagram, Instagram post. Got Instagram, Instagram post. Yeah. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, mazel tov to uh, Misha Tate and partner Johnny Nunez, former Boise State wrestler. Oh, okay. So this week I'm just saying, Ben, uh, I had mixed feelings about learning this news because the first thing I thought when I saw the headline was, oh, Misha Tate and Brian Caraway are going to have a baby? <laughs> yeah. And then I clicked on it and I thought, and I, I didn't know whether to be disappointed in myself that I didn't, that I had no idea that Misha Tate and Brian Caraway had split and that now she has a, a new partner in, in former Boise State wrestler Johnny Nunez or to be proud of myself that I had no idea that this was going on. So I'm either hopelessly out of touch with the sport I'm supposed to cover or, uh, or I'm making real progress. I'm think, just saying. I think it's the second one, honestly. Uh, I'm just going to read you the way Misha Tate ends the Instagram posts announcing her pregnancy. Hashtag follow your heart, hashtag mommy to be, hashtag daughter, I guess it's a girl. Oh, okay, yeah. Hashtag cupcake in the oven, hashtag love, hashtag happy new year, baby emoji, wedding dress <laughs> emoji, uh, snowflake emoji, birthday cake emoji, bow emoji, heart emoji. Wow. So congratulations to Misha Tate and former Boise State wrestler Johnny Nunez. Your life's about to turn upside down. You they, don't even know it. Really. They have no idea. Nope. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week. I think we got another uh, UFC fightless weekend next weekend, but uh, we will figure out something to talk about. As you, Until then, we are done. We are through. We are out. You sure it's a birthday cake emoji? It's not like a wedding cake emoji? Well, it could be either, right? It's just like a cake with with a candle on top. It looks more like, like a one birthday cake. What's the first what, year birthday cake. What's with the snowflake? Winter baby? Wintertime pregnancy? Wintertime pregnancy, but then you probably have the baby like in the summertime, right? Okay, well, now, I didn't think.